heart again tonight and say, uh, transform us. May we not just be people on our way to heaven one day, uh, but may we embrace your love and respond to that by showing love to others. Uh, this is a church of cassette, a church of loving kindness, where there is no shame. May we be lights in our world. Amen. Amen. Would you uh, say hello to somebody and then be seated? All right. If you have the type, let's follow along in an actual Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start there and take uh, quite a journey tonight. Um, if this is your first service uh, being a part of this weekend, um, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Shane. This is uh, all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training, so my stuff comes from that bit. Um, and I have a master's degree in clinical psychology as well. And I, I come tonight uh, with a teaching uh, from the Bible that I hope um, is not something we agree or disagree with, but something we can wrestle with to transform us. Um, really quickly, um, on your way out, uh, you're going to see a resource table there uh, with all kinds of stuff that looks like this. This is uh, my teachings. Um, everything is available out there in CD, DVD, USB, or direct download. And let, me, let me tell you what's going on in case you missed this morning. Um, I, I've, I've got a real need uh, going on in Cape Town uh, in our home that gets girls out of sex trafficking. The, uh, the, the men's home is self-sustaining because they work, but you can't tell women you've just rescued from prostitution that they must get a job. And so, um, and so we're, we, we really work hard at this. And we work hard at not just uh, getting them off the street. We get them off drugs. We get them high school educated. We get them job trained. And, and we, we, we employ uh, professional people to counsel them through the trauma that they've been through. And so uh, we've got a real need around this. And so, um, and so uh, what we've done is, is anything that's in hard copy, so anything that's CD or DVD, is donation only, right? So this is a series I did on the cross and resurrection called The Resurrection Legacy. And um, if you can pay 10 Rand for that, then great. Yeah, if you can't afford it, just take it. If, uh, if you can afford a hundred, a hundred rand of donation or a 500 rand donation, whatever it is, um, whatever it might be, you can just take that uh, for whatever uh, you would like. That's, um, that's the Resurrection Legacy. This is one on, it's called Running from God. It's a series I did on the entire book of Jonah um, from a rabbi's perspective. I, I love that series. It's one of our bestsellers. You can pick that up. And then there's one called Winning at Life. This is on the end of the Sermon on the Mount where I explain what Jesus meant by the broad road and the narrow way and what that meant and how that had nothing Nothing to do with heaven or hell, actually. Um, in that rabbi teaching, it, it's something completely different than that. And so those are three examples of what's out there. So if you could come out there, make any donation of any size and take as much as you want. If you give us 500 rand, you can take the whole table. It's, it's fine by me, all right? So I really just want to help these folks. The, the only thing that I would ask tonight is that um, this church has a real um, chatting culture. And, and I think that's fantastic. I think we should chat afterwards. Um, the only thing I'm asking is, is that if you know you're not going to get anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time. But if you know before I leave tonight, I'm going to grab something. If you could buy first and chat second, that would be awesome. The, the reason is, is we, is, is we have to pack it up. And, um, and so if you could be very kind to Theo, Melissa, and Neovolt out there um, and, and just say, you know, go, go buy first, chat second. That is the order of things. And, um, and we re really appreciate this. So what I'm going to do with this is I'm going to leave these three up here, and um, they're free. So whoever, whoever wants them after the service, uh, please come grab them. Now, um, if, 
if you make a hundred thousand rand a month, don't grab the free ones. Like, good grief. Have a heart, okay? All right, so I want to talk to you about the cross and resurrection tonight, but not as a doctrine. I think we've had enough of that. I, I, think, um, I, I think if the cross and resurrection only stays a doctrine we affirm in our belief, that it's actually missing something, that, that, that the cross and resurrection should not simply be something we affirm, although we affirm it. That the cross and resurrection should be something that fundamentally shifts the way we see our whole world. Right, so so the the cross is not something that has one meaning. It, it, it's not. It's something that defies uh, meaning. For for God to humble Himself, put flesh on, and allow Himself to be executed at the hands of a local government for the sake of all of humanity is not something that has meaning. It's something that defies meaning. Which is why the New Testament writers struggled to find words a, a, around this. So it, in one place. Um, the cross is called the forgiveness of sins. And we say, yes, amen. We embrace that fully. In another place, it's called the cancellation of debt. We say, yes, amen. In another place, it's called the confrontation of oppression. And we say, yeah, oh, absolutely, amen. Let's embrace that. In another place, it's called freedom from slavery. We say, yeah, oh, absolutely, a amen. And the reason there's so, this is why the cross and resurrection is so important to our worldview that if I were to speak 40 messages on the cross and resurrection, never ever repeat myself, I would still not be wrong. Because the cross is not that which has one meaning. It, it is that which defies meaning. And so tonight I want to talk about one meaning and only one meaning only. And it's not because the others aren't true. It's just because we only have one meeting, right? And because we have one meeting, I want to focus on this one meaning because I don't I don't think this meaning of the cross gets enough airtime, all right? I don't think it gets enough playtime. And I, and I want to really challenge us tonight around, have we embraced the cross around this area? So this is a guy named Paul, and he's writing to a church in, in Ephesus, and he's trying to explain one of the meanings of the cross of resurrection, not as a doctrine, but as a fundamental shift in how we see our world. And, and here's what he says, if you could bring that first slide up. For he himself is our peace who has made us both the one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I want to talk to you tonight about a worldview of the cross and resurrection means an end to hostility. That, does the cross mean the forgiveness of sins? Yes, it does. Does it mean the cancellation of debt? Yes, it does. Does it mean the end of oppression? Yes, it does. But it also means the end of hostility between people. The idea is to Paul is that if we are believers in Jesus Christ, that if we disagree on something, no matter how far out we get on the disagreement, at the end of the day, if you dumb it all the way down to its most basic thing, both of us have both of our hands wrapped around the same cross. And that should be the thing that unites us. That Christians should never be the people quarreling over disputable things because Christians should be the people that say, you know what, no matter what we agree with or disagree with, at the end of the day, all of our hands are around the foot of the same cross, and that kills the hostility that could be between us, that that is what 
unites us. To Paul, a worldview of the cross or resurrection does not allow for hostility and escalation, but rather demands peacemaking. Now, Jesus mentions this in his first sermon. I think it's the third line in. Pretty important. Watch the severity of this language. This is unbelievable that Je honestly, if Jesus preached this from most stages today, I don't think he'd be asked back, all right? But it is strong language by red letter Jesus Christ sermon. Check this out. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Really? Is Jesus allowed to do that? By the way, if I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes. So let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? A little bit more springbok gusto, all right? Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. That's better. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Is Jesus framing our basic disposition in conflict as the determining factor as to whether or not we're a child of God or not? Which leads me to this question. If you had to face Jesus today, would Jesus say, now you're a son of God? Based on that criteria, here's my question. Are you a peacemaker or are you someone who escalates hostility? Oh, oh and, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm not even going to begin to exegete the theological ramifications of that because it's just too awesome. And here's the thing. It's not my point tonight. I'm going to let you wrestle with that. But in case you think it's just a one-off sentence, uh -uh. 34 verses later in the same sermon, he says the same thing a different way. Watch what he says. Now, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to notice that's verse 43. That's going to be important in a second. That's verse 43. Don't forget it's verse 43. My point right now, though, is that two different places in the same exact sermon, Jesus ties our basic disposition in conflict to whether or not we would be known as a son of God or not, or a children or a child of the Father. Now, that is pretty... So, so let's back all that out. And instead of talking about the theology of that, let's back off and go to what is obvious. Would you agree with me that our basic disposition in conflict is very important to Jesus? Is our basic disposition in conflict very important to Jesus? So how are we doing with that? Think about your life. When someone disagrees with you or come against you, what is our basic disposition in that conflict? Are we peacemakers or are we hostility escalators? Let me illustrate what I mean with a story. This is something that changed my life. It was an eventful thing in my life. Some, when I say something's eventful, what I mean is it's not something that just happened. It's something that changed the way I saw my world. Um, this was five years ago. Um, I got invited to come to Israel and study with a top history expert. Um, so this guy is booked out two and a half years in advance, and he told me, he said, I do not do tourist tours, I only do academic tours, and um, I've been listening to your stuff, and I'd like to invite you uh, to speak to my Messianic synagogue, and as part of your payment, um, I will take you around 12 to 14 hours a day, and I will teach you history. 
Um, to which I said, okay, but why don't I just come and you teach me history instead of me standing in front of people and me saying things that there's no way you don't already know. And um, he said, no, 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 we love your stuff. We love the, the, the art of discussion making. So that's great. So anyway, so I, I, I go and it was true, 12 to 14 hours a day, um, he taught me history. And it was frankly amazing. Now, he spoke good English, but English is not his first language. Okay. Do you know anybody like that where you speak good English? But anyway, so he's English was not his English was not his first language, but he spoke good English. And this is seriously first day, two hours in, he taught me something about ancient Jewish history that blew my mind. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I exclaimed amazement in a metaphorical way in English. It, you'll understand it, I think. I, this is what I did, and I was exclaiming amazement. I went, really? Really? I was amazed. He did not get that, right? He thought I wanted to fight. Like, he thought I wanted to argue, right? He went, his, I'll, never, I'll be 95 and not forget this. Here is the top history expert in Jerusalem, book two and a half years in advance, teaching PhD students history. He is right. If I disagreed with him, I'm the problem, okay? We're standing in Jerusalem talking about history. He knows, right? Yet, he thought I disagreed with him, and here was his response. I'll never forget it. He went, oh, shame, peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. Well, I was confused, which made it worse. Because my response to that was, what? He said, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. If the world sees our conversation, let Jesus Christ be glorified. The world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right about anything. If one of us needs to be wrong, I'll be that one. That man is redeemed. I looked at him and said, do you think I'm arguing with you? He said, aren't you? I said, okay, first, would you please forgive me for my tone of voice? Obviously, we're confused here. Second, you're the history expert. We're standing in Jerusalem talking about history. If I disagree with you, I'm the problem. And let's get this straight right now. I'm going to be here all week. When it comes to history, I'm not going to disagree with you, bro. <laughs> you're the expert. I was amazed. That was amazement. Like, really? Like, I was amazed. And he went, were you amazed? <laughs> I said, bro, I was amazed. He said, oh, good. He said, because, ooh, I knew I was right about that. But, <laughs> sheesh. I knew I was right about that, but the world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right about anything. And I thought that, that is a peacemaker. 
that's a son of God. That's someone who is the smartest man I've ever met, and yet he was the most humble. And I started to think about it. The ones who know the Bible the best are the ones who are the least belligerent. They're the ones going, hey, whoa, 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 because they understand what it means to be redeemed. Now, to understand this, we have to understand what hostility looks like, and we need to understand then what peacemaking looks like. There's this great story in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of the, sometimes the Bible's telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you a story about what happened, right? There are people in the Bible you do not want to be like, okay? Jonah would be one of them. He never did anything God told him to do. And actually, the one time he did, he did it reluctantly, preached a five-word sermon. It backfires and everyone repents. And then he got upset because everybody repented. You don't want to be that guy, okay? Uh, you don't want to be Jephthah. And you don't want to be Samson. Uh, there's a story in Judges about a guy named Samson. And frankly, Samson's out of control. Um, he doesn't have any regard for scripture or the law or, or just good manners or being kosher uh, or respect for his parents. And, and this is basically how the story goes. It's quite a long story, so I'm just going to tell it. I'm going to read a couple things from it. But he, he, he falls in love with a Philistine woman. He, he tells uh, his, his parents, I love a Philistine. They're like, please don't. She worship other gods. Da, 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 da. And he's like, I love who I love. Shut up. Right. And then it says, it says that, that he snuck out of his house in the middle of the night behind his parents' back to go see this girl. And evidently on the way there, he runs into a lion. Now, if you sneak out of your parents' house to see your girlfriend, the one good way to get caught is to run into a lion. But evidently, he was trained enough and, 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 and armed enough to kill the lion. So he kills the lion, goes and sees the girlfriend, comes back. Later, he does the same thing. And uh, the lion's carcass was still there because the town trash people hasn't picked it up. And so it's there. And evidently, some bees had taken nest inside the lion's carcass. And with no regard for anything, uh, Samson reaches into the lion's carcass and pulls food out of it, right? And uh, which is just, frankly, disgusting. And so later, later he's with his girlfriend's family. And he chooses, he says, I need to prove to these people that I'm smarter than them. So he makes a bet. He says, I bet you, so see, he's got a gambling problem, he's, got a, he's rebellious, he's just, you can't believe this guy. Anyway, he says, I bet you 30 pieces of clothes that I could tell you a riddle that all of you together can't figure out. And they go, all of us together, of course we'll figure it out. Deal. He goes, okay, 30 pieces of clothes. If you figure it out, I owe you 30 pieces. If, if you don't, I, you owe me 30 pieces. They're like, okay, deal. And he says this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I bet you can't guess it. I bet you can't guess it. I bet you can't guess it. Of course they couldn't. He just made it up. He's the only one that saw what he saw. And so, of course, they can't guess it. And he, he gave them seven days. Well, on the seventh day, they, um, they, they say to his fiancée, Listen, um, you're our sister. You need to do whatever women do to get men to talk and tell you the answer. And she goes and does whatever women do to get the guy to talk. Okay, so. So he tells her the answer. And he says, but keep this between us, which of course she doesn't. She goes and tells her family, this is the answer to the riddle. And at the last minute, they say, what is stronger than a lion? What is sweeter than honey? And they guess the riddle. 
And if you're the type of person that thinks God wrote the Bible or something, or you're always looking for a life verse, here's a good one for you. This is a direct quote from the book of Judges. Samson says this, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never gotten that. Right? <clears throat> I love that. A little heifer plowing. Anyway, anyway, so now he owes them 30 pieces of clothes. Instead of admitting, you got me. He doesn't do that. Instead of just admitting, you got me, I'm going to go to the store, get you 30 pieces of clothes, bring it back. No, 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 no. His response was, he went and killed 30 of their family members, stripped them naked, and brought their clothes back. And he goes, this is the clothes of 30 of your dead family members I just killed. Now our bet is even, right? This guy is out of control. His reasonable response to losing a bet was to kill 30 people. That's out of control. If you do that today, you go to jail for life. Back then, they wrote stories about you. Just the world's getting better. Anyway. See, he kills 30 of them. This is how it goes. They respond by giving his wife to another man. And then they offer Samson her little sister. You didn't want to be a woman back then. He then responds by tying foxes together and burning down their crops. That's a year's economy, gone. They then respond by burning that girl's whole family to death in fire. He then responds by killing a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. They then respond by captaining, blinding him, making him a slave. He then responds by pulling an entire building down on them. So what started as a joke that no one understood escalated into 30 people dying into a family being burned to death, into crops being burned down, into a thousand people dying, into everybody dying. That's called the hostility cycle. Now, if you're here and you're married, you understand how this works, right? So this is what happens. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse that started out over how to cut a tomato, right? And it escalated into something else? And it normally starts like this. Well, my mother doesn't cut tomatoes like that. Well, I ain't your mama, am I? Well, well you're not your mama. My mama's not as fat as you. Right, right. So what starts out as a joke no one understands escalates into something bigger. A riddle to people being burned, to crops being burned, to people dying, to everybody dying. That's called the hostility cycle. Now, that's the story of Samson. I want to show you two lines in this story from the book of Judges that's so important for us to understand how hostility works. Next slide. So this is from Judges 15. I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her that I, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Now watch Samson's words here. And Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines, I will really harm them. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you to note that I have a right to get even when I really harm them. And it keeps going. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Those two sentences. I have a right when I hurt them and I will be innocent when I hurt them. That's how hostility works. It continues on. Next slide. Watch this sentence. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the ten night, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now watch Samson's response. 
And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. Oh, and then after that, I'll quit. (laughs) In other words, once I get one up, I'll stop. But if everybody thinks that way, I won't stop until I'm one up on you, and then you don't stop till you're one up on me, it ends up with everybody dying. That's how hostility works. But the cross and resurrection does not allow for that worldview. The cross and resurrection says we never have a right to harm somebody. We'll never be innocent when we intentionally do somebody harm. And we're not called to one-up people. We are called to be the people making peace. Why? Because the gospel in a nutshell is this. Is that while we were still hostile to God, God acted first to make peace. And if we are followers of that God, then we should be the people acting first to make peace and hostility ourselves. That's what's going on. So here's how hostility works. Next slide. So here's how it works. Here's the order. First, you have an offense. Somebody says something. Somebody offends somebody. You have an offense. Then you have a dehumanizing of the adversary. This time I have a right. You're less than human. If I hurt you, no big deal. I'll be innocent when I hurt you because you're less in the image of God than I am. And then there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for our part. At no point in the story does Samson go, you know what, my bad, you got me. When I lost the bet, I should have just given you 30 pieces of clothes. I shouldn't have killed 30 of your family members. No, he just keeps saying, I have a right to get even with you. Then there's escalation, which is exactly what happened in the story. Next slide. Then there's holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Since you've acted like this, now I'm going to act like this. Oh, because you did something, now I will be innocent when I harm you. And when I'm not going to quit till I'm one up on you. And then there's a failure to learn, which leads to repeating the pattern. That's how hostility works. So if that's how hostility works, and Paul called the cross the end of hostility, and Jesus called it peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Well, if that's how hostility works, then let's talk about how peacemaking works. Couple of observations about that. Next slide. The cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but also an end to hostility. The cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. Uh, Let's say it this way. Peacemaking is not passive. It's charging him with a different way and changing lives. It's intentionally moving towards peace. The great marriage psychologist Emerson Egricks calls it the crazy cycle in marriage. That all marriages go through a crazy cycle at some point. That without love, she'll respond without respect. And without respect, he'll respond without love. And without love, she'll respond without respect. And without respect, he'll respond without love. And around and around and around and around and around the escalation goes until somebody breaks the hostility cycle and makes peace. And Emerson Egricks makes this good point. He says, in a marriage, the one who's most mature is always the one who will make the peace first. Always. Always. Always the most mature one is going, hang on, this is going nowhere. Let's make peace. Because here's the truth of it. If we, if we just let it go every single time, if every, every time somebody says something we don't like or... Every time somebody cuts us off in traffic, or if, it, if we just let it go every single time, we'd only regret it about 2% of the time. So what would life be like? Could you imagine a world where Christians took this seriously? Not just their forgiveness, not just going to heaven when they die, but rather bringing heaven here and ending hostility by making peace. 
Now, if that's how hostility works, the question is, how does peacemaking work? Now, sometimes, sometimes peacemaking, you could teach it line upon line, like bullet points. Other times, it's best taught in images. And I think Jesus um, has some good images in this. I, I'm going to test your memory here. It, when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That was Matthew 5, verse 43. He's actually ending a series of three thoughts that he gives on what peacemaking looks like. So, so let's look at that. Next slide. So the first image is to turn the other cheek. To turn the other cheek. This is Matthew 5, 39. Four verses before 43. Here's what he says. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. So Jesus said, this is what peacemaking looks like. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one. How have we done with that? How serious do we take the Bible? You, people who say, I take the Bible serious. Okay, how have you done with that? Do you turn the other cheek? Does that even work? What is Jesus talking about? So let's talk about this. To understand this, we have to understand first century Roman class systems. In Jesus' world, the Roman Empire ruled the world. And there was a nine-level class system. If you want a great read on this, the great Franciscan monk Richard Rohr wrote a book, The Sermon on the Mount, where he spends 45 pages talking about the nine-layered Roman class system. And here's how it worked. There was level one to level nine. They all had names. Don't worry about them for right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And if we were both first-class citizens and I wanted to challenge you, I would always challenge you with my right hand. Because there was a nine-layered Roman class system, there was a difference between right-handed slaps and left-handed slaps. If we were both level one, I would always challenge you with my right hand because that was my clean hand. But if I was level one and you were level eight, I would not waste my clean hand on you. I would hit you with my left hand because that's the hand I wipe my bum with. It was like, you're not even worth my clean hand. I'm going to hit you with my poo-poo hand. All right? <clears throat> now, now, now think about this. Listen to Jesus' words. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, think about that. Jesus is talking to Galilean peasants. They were class eight. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, how, how do you slap someone on the right cheek? You have to use your left hand. In other words, if someone is declaring in public that you're less than them, turn the other cheek. In other words, don't fight back, you'll die. But here's what you do. You only present the side of you that makes them address you as an equal, and they will not do it. To turn the other cheek is not to just cop whatever they give you. When, when I, I've heard people use turn the other cheek to, to encourage abused women to stay with abusive men. No way. That, let me tell you what that is. That's an ancient theological word that finds its basis in Latin. The word is bullimus crapimus, okay? Now, if, 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 if you're, it's, it's Latin, not quite sure the direct translation, but bullimus crapimus is the idea. No. To turn the other cheek 
is to, in a nonviolent way, draw a line in the sand that says, listen, I'm happy to have this conversation with you, but you will address me as an equal. You are not more of a human being than I am. That is turn the other cheek. The, the next one, check this one out. Next slide. Oh, next slide. Yep. The two, he said, this is the next verse. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, to understand this, to understand the first one, we got to understand Roman class system. To understand this one, we got to understand Deuteronomy law. Let me explain. Next slide. All right. In Deuteronomy, if someone sued you and you couldn't pay, you could give them your outer coat as a promise. Right? So this is how that would work. If I owed you money and you said, it's time for you to pay me money. You owe me money. And you go, you know what? You're right. But I can't pay you. I, I can't. I'd love to, but I can't. But here's what I can do. I can take my outer coat off and give it to you as a pledge. That was what was legal. Okay. Now, next slide. So what was happening was, is in their culture, Galilean peasants were under 87% taxation. 30% of their fish, 50% of their grain, 12.5% of, of their total revenue to Caesar as the son of God, Roman road tax, uh, temple tax, and the dodginess of the tax collector. All of this was going on. So what was happening is, is the top 3% rich people were oppressing the Roman sympathizers. They were oppressing these Galilean peasants, and they were coming in demanding money, knowing they couldn't pay, and these people were losing their family land that had been in their family since the book of Judges. And so Jesus said, if someone demands your outer coat, give them your inner coat as well. Well, there was only two pieces of clothes. Jesus is essentially telling people, get naked, right? Why would he do that? Let me show you this. Bring it. In Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is shameful. So the man being sued is placing the shame on the other while being peaceful, because what kind of person would take both clothes? The, the principle is this. The way to confront greed is not confrontation. The way to confront greed is uber generosity. Let, let me illustrate. If you're ever at a dinner, right, and it's you and a friend, and you're at a dinner, and the waiter comes in and says, how are we doing the bill, right? And you say, split it up. And the other person says, I'll take it. And you do it simultaneously. What'll happen is, is you'll end up arguing over who's going to get the bill, even though the greedy person has already played all their cards and revealed they don't want to pay both parts of the bill. But the uber generosity of the other person is exposing, is exposing the greed in the heart of the second person. And that's, that, that is what this is about. That the way to confront greed is uber generosity. Jesus said, here's what peacemaking looks like. Turn the other cheek, give your tunic and your cloak. Here, here's this next sentence. Next slide. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, look at that word forced. If anyone forces you to go a mile, what a weird sentence. Go to. Now, to understand this, we have to understand Roman military law. So turn the other cheek, we got to understand the class systems. Go the, I mean, the tunic and the cloak, we understand Deuteronomy law. To go the extra mile, we have to understand first century Roman military law. See, Galilee was occupied by a foreign military. They were under martial law all the time. Could you imagine it? And the Roman military were considered class one, and you were considered class eight. You had literally had no rights. In Migdal, for instance, it was not against the law for a Roman soldier to rape a woman. It wasn't. They could do it with no recompense, right? So here's what would happen. <coughs> Excuse me. The Romans carried these 70-pound packs around. Well, if they have a three-mile walk that day, they're not going to carry their 70-pound pack. They're going to make you do it. 
They're going to force you to go a mile. Here's why. Roman military law said that you could force a class eight person to go one mile, but you could not force them to go more than a mile because they wanted them to be able to go back and go to work and pay more taxes. It would have been counterproductive, right? So you could force them to go one mile, but if you ever forced them to go more than a mile, you would be court-martialed a day's wage. So Jesus says it to Galilean peasants. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile at the one mile mark, Take off running, and you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down, trying to get you to stop. You will flip the script. In other words, get a reputation for being a little bit cray-cray. Get a reputation for being a little bit crazy, and take off running. Be uber-generous. Expose their oppression by being uber-generous, and you will turn the tables. This is how Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and give your tunic and cloak as well. There, there's one other image I want to, to talk about about what it means to be a peacemaker, and that's this, next slide. It's to heal the ear, to heal the ear. There's one interesting story, there's a lot of interesting stories, there's a very interesting story about when Jesus gets arrested. And here's the basics of the story. It says, the servant of the high priest, a guy named Malchus, was leading the charge to kill Jesus, right? So he's leading the charge to kill Jesus. He's got a, a platoon of Roman soldiers behind him. Judas kisses Jesus. Malchus says, get him, right? And it says that one of Jesus' disciples took out a knife or a sword and cut Malchus's ear off. Now that is such a weird story, right? Because there's so many questions like, was it legal to cut a man's ear off in the first century? This guy cuts this guy's ear off in front of the police and no one even arrests him. The Roman soldiers are, are pretty much all these crazy Jews. And we all know who did it, right? His name was Peter, right? How do we know that? Matthew just says it was a certain companion of Jesus. We don't know it's Peter. I think we just assume it because Peter was a... Mark said it was one of Jesus' friends. Luke says it was one of Jesus' disciples. How do we know it was Peter? We, we know it was Peter because John said, Peter did it, right? <laughs> right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, let's keep this on the down low, shall we? John's like, throwing Peter under the bus. <laughs> right? <laughs> so Peter chops this dude's ear off, and it gets weird because... No one arrests him. The Roman soldiers are like, oh, these Jews. What in the world is going on here? Now, to understand this, we have to understand Levitical law. And we have to understand the tension between the priests and the Pharisees or the rabbis. See, to be a rabbi, you had to earn it. You had to go to school from 6 to 30. In the whole Bible, there's three people called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That is it. But a priest, you didn't have to earn anything. You just had to be born. A priest was determined by who your daddy was. To be a rabbi, it was determined by your credentials. And so there was this classic, we earned our spot, you were born into yours tension between these two, right? And so Malchus is the servant of the high priest, which means he's next in line to be the high priest. He's learning all emotions, he's doing all this stuff. The reason it was legal to cut his ear off was because he was a priest. Now, let me explain. What they did was, because priests were born into it, 
it was possible for a righteous priest to give birth to a wicked man. And if a righteous priest gives birth to a wicked guy, that wicked guy is going to be the next priest. And they didn't want to be a wicked man to be the one representing them before God. And so they had to come up with a way to disqualify these people. And they, and they came up with it. They used an obscure law from Leviticus 21 that gives the ways a priest can be disqualified. Let me show it to you. This is Leviticus 21. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face. That is unbelievable that that was even... Sir, you are entitled to the priesthood, but your face is just a bit mutilated. <laughs> just odd. Or a limb too long. Sir, you, your one leg's longer than the other. It's just a problem. Or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, Think about it. If four men hold you down and take two bricks and crush your testicles, isn't, isn't your last concern whether you could be a priest or not? Like, like, hey, how was your day? Horrible. Horrible. Four men held me down and crushed my testicles. You know what the worst part is? I can't be a priest anymore. No. No. If four guys hold you down and crush your testicles, you're just thinking, how do I die now? It also leads to the question of this. Would you agree with me that the worst job in the history of the world was the priest inspector? <laughs> right? Imagine that. No physical blemishes. Check. Mutilated face. Nope. Looks okay. Limbs look relatively the same length. Check. Is he a dwarf? Nope. A hunchback? Check. Nope. Sir, there's just this one more uncomfortable examination. It's going to be just as uncomfortable for me as you. <laughs> Seem to be in working order. It's fine. Let's keep on watching. Next one. Next slide. Yeah, there we go. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall, co shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he cannot draw near to offer the bread. Here's what they would do. Here's what they would do. They knew if a priest was deemed wicked, they could disqualify him by Levitical law by giving him a blemish, right? And so what they would do, you could read about this in, in Josephus and some of Brad Young's work and some other places like that. But um, what they would do is they would, they would pierce their ear. They would hold them down. They would pier they'd give them a blemish on their ear. They would pierce their ear and pull, right? which would hurt, you would get over it, but it would give you an obvious two things. One, it would give you an obvious physical blemish, and secondly, it's a whole lot better than the crushed testicle option, right? Right? Imagine that. Hey, get him, guys. We're going to show that guy. Get me them bricks. No, we don't do that. We're just going to give him a little earlobe problem, right? And so, and so they would do this. So the reason that it was legal was that Malchus was a priest. So Peter takes a knife. Now, my Sunday school teacher taught me that Peter was trying to cut his head off and missed. What? I mean, follow me here. Like, if you have a sword, 
right? And you're intending to cut someone's head off, right? And you hit them in their ear hole. That's called a direct hit, right? Right? What more than likely happened is Peter came up behind them with a knife or a sword and just flicked his ear off, right? Now, what did that do? What's Peter doing? Hey, you're fixing to kill the real temple, then you have no business serving in the temple made with the hands of men, and I'm going to make sure you never do. And he chops his ear right off. Here's the important part. What was Jesus' response? He says two things. Peter, put your knife away. If you live that way, you're going to die that way. In other words, if you make a practice of disqualifying people, at some point someone's going to disqualify you. And by the way, in two hours, you're going to disown me three times in public court. You might want to keep your knife in the sheath. Right? Jesus' second response was to put the man's ear back on. Now, I hope this story, anytime I preach, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope you're fixing to fall in love with Jesus more than you ever have. Jesus' response to the guy leading the charge to kill him was to put his ear back on. Not only healing his ear, but restoring him back to the priesthood. Which leads me to this question. Where on earth do we ever get the idea that Jesus is out to get people? If Jesus was going to get people, he was going to get that guy. Jesus' response to the guy leading the charge to kill him was to put his ear back on. Which leads me to this question. If that's our Jesus, then why are Christians the people always looking for a way to cut people's ears off? Why do we Google famous pastors' names looking for a way to disqualify them when Jesus is looking for every way to get their ear back on their head? And here's why that's so important. Next Sunday, 40, 50 people are going to visit this church. They're going to come in here, and here's what's happened. Their ear is in their hand. Somebody somewhere has told them, you've done something. You've done this. You've done that. You can't be used by God anymore. You've been disqualified. Somebody has cut their ear off their head. And if the church of Jesus Christ is anything, we should be peacemaking. And part of peacemaking is affirming to people that no matter what you've done or where you've been, we are committed to the process of getting your ear back on your head because the body of Christ should never be ear cutters and always ear repairers. Always. Always. Which leads me to this question. Has anybody cut your ear off? And I want to declare to you that the spirit of the risen Christ is wanting to put your ear back on your head. That the church of Jesus Christ should never be looking for ways to chop people, but always a way to put their ear back on. Which leads me to this. Great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. If you don't think about this sermon past tonight, it's not a good sermon. I failed. Or if you just go, well, I agree with that. Or if you go, well, I don't agree with that. So what? Great sermons are not meant to be evaluated like that. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. And the best way to do that is with some questions. So let's think about tonight this way. Next slide. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? Is there any place we're guilty of saying, yes, Jesus, forgive me. Yes, Jesus, let me into heaven. But no, I don't want to pick up the cross that forces me to be peaceful with my enemy. Is there any place we've done that? 
Or, or let's say it this way. Have, have, have we wanted mercy for ourselves, but justice for everybody else? Like, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me, God get them, God get them. Are you kidding me? Let's say it this way. Is there any place we're escalating violence? Is there any place right now that we could stop the hostility, but we're actually escalating it? Is there an argument at work that could end tomorrow? Maybe we should just memorize this. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. Try that with your wife tonight. She comes at you. Oh, peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. Try that with your husband tonight. He barks something. Oh, peace. Let's say it this way. Whose ear do we need to repair? Is there anyone who we really need to make a phone call or a text or coffee? And get their ear back on. But Shane, you don't know what they did. Did they lead the charge to kill Jesus? No. Then let's put their ear back on their head. If, if you're the type of person that only remembers one thing from a sermon, maybe let's do it this way. Next slide. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? What if it's not just forgiveness? What if it's not just heaven? What if the cross was a physical ma manifestation of an entire new way to live on this earth between each other? That's what Paul insisted. So I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to not just embrace the cross that forgives you, but also embrace the cross that forces us to be peacemakers with other people. And if you just couldn't cope the level of challenge tonight, peace between us is the most important thing. The world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right about anything. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace. And may you respond to that by showing peacemaking to other people. Charge in tomorrow with a different way to live. Thanks so much for being part of your life. I love you very much. Until I see you next time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless you.